1: Hey, what is up everyone? Welcome to the Crack House Chronicles. I am Donnie, your host, and with me today is a man who won't be standing in the rain with his head hung low just to get a ticket. Is Dale. What is up, Dale? <laughs> What's up, Donnie? That was great. I really like that. How you doing today? Man, I'm great. I'm glad
0: to be back in the Crack House to do another episode. Heck yeah, this is going to be a good one. And uh, To quote David Frizzell, I sure have been missing you. So let's get this thing going.
1: <laughs> I think this is our first serial killer episode. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and I'm, I've am i been super excited about it. Everybody's heard of Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, Jeffrey Dahmer. Richard this, Ramirez. Yeah, but this guy, he he puts these guys to shame, and nobody's heard of him. He is very, I don't know, obscure when it comes to having media coverage about him there's nothing much on him and his name is randall brent woodfield and dale he was born on december 26, 1950 he was born in salem oregon he was the third child of an upper middle class family i mean his family is pretty prominent his mom was a homemaker and his father was actually an executive for pacific northwest bail I'm I'm assuming that's a telephone company. Yeah, it's like a Pacific Bell. Yes, or Southern Bell here in the eastern Southern North Carolina. Yeah, exactly. And this would be back before cell phones, so you know he's pretty prominent. Oh yeah, this is yeah this is landline stuff. Right. He has two older sisters, one of whom went on to be a doctor, and the other went on to be a lawyer. So this is we're talking, you know, prestigious offspring right here. Yeah, very much so. And the Woodfield family was well-known and respected in their community. Now, Randy, he was raised in Otter Rock, Oregon. And that's a small seaside town in central Oregon coast. And it's about eight miles north of Newport. And everything I've read, Dale, he was pretty popular among his classmates. He was a football star at Newport High School. From all accounts, he had a pretty normal childhood. I mean, there was nothing unusual about it until he reached junior high school. Yeah, and that's when some problems started to yeah. spring up, if you will. And one of the first things that sprung up was he began to exhibit sexually dysfunctional behaviors, and, and particularly exposing himself in public. And while in high school, Randy exposed himself to a group of teenage girls on the Yakina Bay Bridge, and was arrested for indecent exposure. Yeah, this was in high school. Yeah. I think, two his football coaches helped him conceal this incident, Dale. Yeah, I would think so, too. They kind of keep it under wraps. and don't want no trouble
0: and nobody bothering their star receiver.
1: Yeah. And, <clears throat> and they, you know, they swept this under the road pretty much and prevented him from being ousted from the team. Yeah, they kind of just played it off as uh, boys being boys, just a little slap on the wrist, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And his parents also forced him to attend therapy over this incident, which you know, I don't know if it helped him or not. I don't. Well, I know it didn't help him, but you know, I think I think at the time it probably helped him a little bit. We're going to get into his career right now. After graduating high school, Dale Randy's criminal record was expunged. This exposure. That he did on the Bay Bridge was expunged, and he attended Treasure Valley Community College. Yep, as in uh, Ontario, Oregon. Later transferring to Portland State University in Portland. And in 1970, he played for the Portland State Vikings as a wide receiver. Also in Portland State, he was active in the Campus Crusade for Christ, and that's a Christian student group. right. And he lived in an apartment located on the South Park block. Yeah, at this time,
0: he had become a born-again Christian, and uh, he seemed very serious about his religion, even joined a
1: fellowship of Christian athletes also. So, you know, at this point, too, when he had that therapy, I'm thinking that maybe this was sort of transferring over from that. Maybe he had some little bit better guidance in his life, maybe better people from this therapy. Yeah, it seems
0: he was pushed that way, and he was embracing it.
1: Yeah, that's, that's what I'm thinking. I think up to this point, you know, he... It was about people he was being around. I don't know if I'm wrong on that, but, you know, with that therapy, you know, like I said, maybe he had a positive attitude in life. And being in a Christian group, that that probably helped a little bit. I don't know. Am I wrong on that, Dale? I mean, do you think? Yeah, it helped a little bit, but it didn't help long. All right. <laughs> no, it didn't help long at all. All right. Woodfield's football coach, Gary Hamlet, recalled about him when he was with me he was the nicest most gentlemanly kid i ever knew he was quiet and polite hard-working and real coachable he sucked in everything i tried to coach him that was a quote from randy hamlet other teammates and peers of randy's recalled him as soft-spoken and kind of a loner who didn't have a lot of friends
0: yeah some said uh he was a little strange he was kind of like he's hiding stuff and then another one said that uh it seemed real important for him to appear as he is a guy that would always do the right thing. So he was always looking for his appearance to be broadcast as favorable. Yeah,
1: he, and he has an appearance, that's for sure. He's a pretty vain fellow. Yeah, and despite thriving in college, Randy was arrested on several occasions for petty crimes. The first of which was in 1970, and this was for vandalizing the apartment of his ex-girlfriend. And later, he was arrested in 1972 for public indecency in Vancouver, Washington. And then uh, again in 1973, he was arrested for public indecency. So this is getting back to him exposing himself uh, like he did in high school. Yeah, he was pretty proud, apparently. (laughs) He wanted everybody to see it. All right, now while he was in college, Dale, he dropped out three semesters shy of graduating with a BS in physical education. Correct. And at this time, he was selected as a wide receiver in the NFL draft, 1974 NFL draft yep. by the Green Bay Packers. In their 17th
0: round, the 428th pick overall. Yeah, that was
1: that was way down the line. <clears throat> yeah, it was like fifteen from the end, but he still got drafted. He still got drafted. I mean, and he was proud of the fact that hey, he got drafted. I will never get drafted for the NFL. I can tell you that right now. So him getting drafted is, you know, pretty pretty dang cool.
0: And also, number one that year was a uh, Ed Tuttle Jones from my Dallas Cowboys. Thank you very much. All
1: right, now there weren't as many football teams back in. Was this you know being seventeenth round four hundred twenty eighth pick? Was that. Better or worse than today? It'd Ste- be way worse. They only have
0: two hundred and fifty-three picks now. Yeah. So he would be like double. baby practice squad at best.
1: Yeah. If 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 that if
0: he even got that far yet yeah, because yeah. it's almost twice as many. Well, right. not quite.
1: But the Packers saw something in him. You know, they thought you know he would be. You know, they going to give him a chance. So he got drafted. I mean, right. he was he was going to go to training camp and. Work for the Green Bay Packers.
0: Yeah, they offered him a contract, uh, sixteen thousand dollars for one year with some uh, bonuses for catch numbers. Mm-hmm. And if you're going from being working at a uh, burger chef to uh, to this, it's probably a
1: pretty good thing. Yeah, he was flipping burgers at Burger Chef. Right. And this was the 1974 draft, so sixteen thousand dollars in 1974 was a pretty good chunk of change. Yeah, you probably buy a house for that. I, I think I remember who was it uh, back then, Bart Starr. Yep. At that time, he was making $100,000.
0: Yeah, and they were complaining he was being overpaid. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and he was the number one guy. Yeah, so, you know, at 428th pick at $16,000, that's not too bad. Not too shabby. And I think they were going to pay him per
0: catch or ever. It was like a 2,000 if he got uh, 20 or 25 catches and then 3,000 for a 30 catch. They were running up a,
1: a bonus if he yeah. got those numbers. So that's, that's pretty good paycheck. Yeah. You know, for him being on the team. <clears throat> Put around twenty grand. That's right. Now Woodfield this, he tried to establish himself with the Packers during the coach and general manager Dan Devine's last season. He signed a contract in nineteen seventy four, but was cut during training camp, failing to make the team's roster. So I think I think this had an effect on him, Dale.
0: Yeah, I think so too. And I think they cut him for more than one reason. It wasn't just because he wasn't good enough to make the team. He had been in trouble again, getting arrested several times for indecent exposure again. Yeah. And that, they, that's not going to cut it in Green
1: Bay. No. no. this, you know, if anybody remembers Green Bay Packers, I mean, whenever you saw these guys out, they were, they were dressed in three-piece suits. They were, they were the cream of the crop. Yeah, it was going off of that 60s run. They, was, they were still head of the class. And they, yeah, they put their players above everybody else. They, you know, if you were a Packer, they expected the best out of you at all times public and private and everywhere you went so after being cut from the packers woodfield played the 1974 season with a semi-pro manitowoc chiefs right and worked for oshkosh truck so he was playing semi-pro football and working at a. Um, I'm, I'm guessing this oshkosh truck was a they made trucks yeah it's kind of like freightliner around here okay. Oshkosh. i've been there several times okay really cool place Shout out to Oshkosh. Now this uh, Manitowoc Chiefs. That's uh, the same area where this Stephen Avery come from, making a murderer. Right. It's the same same area. And you know soon. I got to think about this too. That at this time, Stephen Avery, you know, living in this area, hey, he might have went to see the Manitowoc Chiefs. Oh, wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be yeah? that would be <laughs> pretty awesome. But anyway, while he was working at Oshkosh... He had a similar arrest in Portland and earned him more suspended time. And in June of 1973, after a dozen flashing incidents, the Packers formally cut him from the NFL. Man to what cut him, too. Yeah, so he was gone. But everything I've read, Dale, and his performance on the field, when he played for Portland State, he had, he had good ratings. I mean, he was timed at the four – he was timed at 4.7 in the 40. Yep, cuts on a dime, has good hands and catches well in a crowd. Fluid and smooth, hustles and a good jumper. Yep, I mean those are his his stats. That's on his record as far as his playing ability. So, you know, somebody saw something in him somewhere along the line. Yeah, he was a six foot, 170 pounds, and that was his scouting report you just read. So, yeah
0: today's standards he would not be a big receiver at all he would be very small and, and slow actually more like a lineman speed today but yeah in 74 it was fast yeah that
1: was that was a lot different all right when randy left wisconsin in late 74 he returned to portland and he was pretty much dale he was disgraced by his failure to maintain his football career yeah he could have went back to college and only hit those what
0: those three semesters and he still uh, had a scholarship so he went back for free but he just chose to
1: do nothing yeah um, I don't I don't understand that I mean he could have had a he could have had his career and went back and become a physical education teacher which you know but I think him having the being cut I even, think it killed even him. from semi-pro it, yeah it killed
0: him that was his dream that's what he wanted to be a football player so he had just a, life's over if he can't be a football
1: player so in early 1975 several Portland women were accosted by a knife wielding man forced to perform oral sex, and then robbed of their handbags. So he was uh, having their way with them and taking their money, too. Yeah, so he was jogging. I was thinking, how much money could you be carrying if you were jogging? But it was just a yeah. self-question. All right. Law enforcement at this time, they responded to a string of crimes by having women, female officers, act as decoys. Yeah, setting up a sting for the guy. Yeah, they were trying to catch this guy. because it, it was going on pretty big yeah and also in this area we had um, other serial killers going on too which we'll talk about a little bit later but there were other serial killers in this area on March 3rd 1975 Woodfield was arrested after being caught with marked money from, from one of these undercover officers now Dale upon interrogation he confessed to the crimes right and he blamed poor sexual impulse control and he blamed this on the use of steroids. Uh, I don't know about that. I ain't buying it. Either. <laughs> I think he was just trying to trying to get out. Yeah, he always got, got a good. Uh, he always got out of everything before. You know, me and you talked off the air about this too, and him getting expunged from his high school record when he was arrested in high school. I think I think here he thought he could get out of anything. Oh yeah, he's getting off easy every time. So in April of 1975, he give, he pled guilty to reduced charges of second degree robbery. He was sentenced to ten years in prison, but was freed on parole. So he only served four years. There you go. There's another little slap on the wrist for him. Yeah, I mean he he got out without you know not serving anything at all hardly. And these these were these were big crimes. Yeah. Of, it was just I mean, some people they get they serve a long time for this stuff I like, like this. Sense. Rape and robbery. All these. Yeah. I think he kept building up his crimes. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Yeah, because this guy was, he didn't care. Now, we're going to get into some of his first murders. And on October the 9th, 1980, Sherry Ayers was his first. Yep. Now, Dale, she was an x-ray technician and a former classmate of Woodfield. Yeah, they had known each other since uh, second grade. Yeah, second grade in school. She was raped and murdered in her apartment in the 9,000 block of Southwest Ninth Place in
0: Portland. Yeah, her fiancé came in and found her. She had been bludgeoned and uh, several stab wounds in the neck.
1: Yeah. And raped. Her body was discovered on October 11th, like Dale said, by her fiancé. And Ayers, she was a University of Oregon graduate. But during Woodfield's prior four-year imprisonment, he and Ayers had corresponded letters. They had sent letters back and forth, and we're going to post pictures of these letters on our social medias when this uh, episode airs. But suspecting Woodfield's involvement, Ayers' family provided his name to law enforcement. He was questioned but refused to sit for a polygraph test. Homicide detectives found his answers genuinely evasive and, and almost deceptive, Dale, but because of his blood type, and they didn't find a semen match in the bo- the victim's body. No charges were filed. Yeah, it's kind of strange how the blood type has to match the semen type. I guess this is
0: all way before DNA. Yeah, this was way before so DNA. They were just doing what they could. But he had they had him dead to rights right there, and the test failed him.
1: Yeah. And we're going to get into some of the DNA stuff later on, too. But, um, yeah, he, he he got off again. I mean, he didn't—no charges were filed. No charges. Now, one month later— On the morning of November 27th, this was Thanksgiving Day. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. I mean, he didn't care. Randy arrived at the North Portland home of Darcy Renee Fix. She was a 22-year-old, and he was planning to assault her. Woodfield had known Fix during college as an ex-girlfriend of one of his close buddies, and his name was Douglas Keith Altig. I think think I'm pronouncing that right. It's A-L-T-I-G. And he was 24 years old. And he was at Fix's home when Woodfield arrived. Both Fix and Altig were bound and shot to death execution style in their home. And Fix's thirty-two caliber revolver was missing from the scene. So they were shot with their own gun. Yeah. And, and then what, stole it. Yeah. Due to his acquaintance with Fix, Woodfield was questioned in the murders, but law enforcement found no evidence pointing to his involvement. So there again, Dale, he... he Listen was, and release and see you later. Yeah, he was still walking the streets or or driving up and down the road. This is where he be became known as the I-5 killer, but it wasn't labeled him. That's just what they had come up with if, with this person that was going up and down the road committing these crimes. After committing the murders of Fix and Altig, Woodfield began a series of robberies throughout the Northwest. And Dale, on December the 9, 1980, Randy, wearing a fake beard, held up a Vancouver-Washington gas station at gunpoint. Yeah. In Eugene, Oregon, four nights later, on December 13th, he raided an ice cream parlor. And the next night, on the 14th, he robbed a drive-in restaurant in Albany. During one of these robberies, Woodfield wore what appeared to be a Band-Aid or some type of athletic tape across the bridge of his nose. And it's also it's all, almost kind of like those breed strips. That, yeah. And anti anti snoring device, athlete yeah. strips. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if football players snore while they when they wear them or not. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's those little nasal strips. But it, the it was described as being tape. That's what they they said. Right. And that along with his uh, fake beard is his disguise. Maybe his yeah. hat. Yeah. And on December twenty first, Randy, wearing a fake beard again, accosted a waitress in Seattle. Taping her in a restroom, forcing her at gunpoint, and forcing her to satisfy him. Yeah, yeah. So this is where sexually assaulting her.
0: Yeah, this is where it basically takes a turn for the worse at this one right here. Yeah,
1: this is where his crimes have escalated.
0: Yeah, and by January 1981, he's dubbed now the I-5 Bandit because of all these robberies that were on the Interstate Five corridor running up and down the
1: the coast there. Yeah, and on January the 8th. He held up the same Vancouver gas station that he had robbed in December, this time forcing the female to expose her breast to him after he emptied the cash register. Yeah, this guy's just
0: a little weird. He is all over the place. I don't know if he's want the money or just the satisfaction.
1: Well, yeah. You know, I don't know if he was working at this time. So he probably need the money. Getting a little bit of both. Yeah. Strange guy. I know I've read, too, where, where he went. You know, he paid cash for everything. You know, it was... He had he had lots of cash,
0: right? Well,
1: I'm assuming he's robbing. Yeah. <laughs> Three days later, on January 11th, he robbed a market in Eugene. The next day, on January 12th, he shot and wounded a female grocery clerk at a store in Sutherland, Oregon. So now, yeah, he's like I say, he's he's all up and down the road, Dale.
0: Yeah, January 14th, he, he fixing to get a little, little rough us. So the man matching the description of the i five bandit, wearing a fake beard, invades a home occupied by two sisters, ages of eight and ten, where he forces the girls to disrobe and sexually assaults both of them. Yeah. So well, that's a piece of.
1: Yeah, he's he's a piece of work. Yeah. So guys, that's what I was gonna say. Piece of work. Yeah, y'all think that Bundy and Dahmer were bad? I mean, this guy is. Well, he don't care. No, he he does not care. Domineering over females is his game, seems to be to me. Mm-hmm. This is a critical point in Woodfield's case right here. On January the 18th, Shari Hull, she was 20, and Beth Wilmot, who was 20, they were employees at a Transamerica office in Kaiser, Oregon. That's spelled K-E-I-Z-E-R, Kaiser, Oregon. They were accosted by Woodfield during their evening work shift. I think they cleaned this, this building. Yeah, they were cleaning an office building together and uh, actually— they were almost done, and they happened
0: to see uh, one more smudged window, and they went back to clean it, and that would be their
1: downfall. Yeah, one of the one of the women went out with trash, and she heard something, but she come back in the building, and the the other employee, her friend that was working with her, I, I can't remember which one it was, but they hollered out to her, and she came in the room, but uh, Randy was behind her with a gun. He is. He sexually assaulted both women before shooting each of them in the head. Shari Hull died of her injuries, but Beth Wilmot survived. Yeah,
0: he said that he shot Sherry in the head, and then he shot Beth in the head, and then Beth heard Sherry moaning, so he shot her twice more, and then shot Beth again, but
1: miraculously she survived two shots of the head with a thirty-two. And I've heard too that the the bullets didn't even penetrate her skull. It was almost like I glanced off her, her skull. Lucky, lucky, lucky. Oh, yeah, very lucky. It, she must have had a hard hit or something. I don't know. She's lucky to, very lucky to be here. And actually, Beth Wilmot was the main witness to bringing Randy down.
0: Yeah, not only she's five, she got up and called the cops. <laughs> yeah. Called the police to come over and say they'd been raped and shot, and her friend had been shot, and, and uh, the cops were headed that way. Yep. And they run into a guy. He's about a mile out. They matches the description that the girl gave, but they assumed there is no way that this could be the same guy, and he's a mile away from the scene. So they didn't even stop. They just continued on to try to help the girls.
1: Yep. All right. Now, on February the 3rd, this was just a couple of weeks later, an unnamed woman who was 18-year-old was kidnapped at gunpoint, raped near Redding, California. Uh, she was raping them early morning hours, but she survived. Also, on February the third, man, this guy was on a—he was on a tear. Yeah, he was on a tear. Uh, Donna Eckert, who was thirty-seven, and her daughter Janelle Jarvis were both found sexually assaulted and shot to death in their Shasta County home. Yeah, the daughter was fourteen. Yeah. Jarvis was determined to have been sodomized after death. Mm. Yeah, this guy, I mean, like I say, his his stuff was getting worse and worse. Yeah, it's pretty bad there. Yeah. He changed gears big time right there. Now, on February the 4th, the very next day after this, an unnamed woman was kidnapped and raped in Rica, California. But she survived. Yeah, I don't know, you know, some of these people that, are, that aren't named, I don't know if they've their identity identity was withheld or yeah there was quite a few
0: like that weren't there yeah i couldn't find the names like the fabric store and ice cream place a lot of those things but maybe they didn't feel as important as i don't know yeah but we're gonna yeah, maybe be hiding
1: something you know? we're gonna get mention all this stuff later about what was brought up at the trials and different things but we're just giving you a rundown of some of the victims now a couple weeks later on february the 15th julie reitz she was 18 she was raped and shot to death in her Beaverton, Oregon home around 4 a.m.
0: Yeah, another girl that he knew, he uh, he was working as a bouncer in a bar, and she was coming in, and he'd let her in underage. So they were kind of buddies, so that's how they knew each other. Mm-hmm. But he knew. He arrived at, uh, at Julie's house about 2 a.m., it said, and then about 4 a.m. that he had raped and shot her in the head. But they had found some wine glasses there, like two wine glasses, and then... And they had put some coffee on, but it was only the water so it had boiled down to nothing in the bottom of the pot, so they automatically knew that she probably knew her killer.
1: yeah yeah they went back he went back to her place. Oh yeah, After about yeah you know, that's where he was going. His crimes were getting worse and worse. If we retrace some of Randy's movements along i-5, law enforcement have identified at least 25 other potential murders, while other estimations suggest up to 44. But, you know, Dale, like I mentioned earlier, along this area, uh, Ted Bundy was also working this area. Yeah. It's kind
0: of crazy. He drove the same kind of car, too, both of Volkswagen Bug. Yeah.
1: Pretty strange, though. Yeah. And and some of these, they don't even know if Woodfield or Ted Bundy committed these murders on some of these women. As, and they, they, they still don't know. It's, it's pretty shocking. All right. Now, during the spring of 1980... Marshall Wetter, who was 19, and Kathy Allen, who was 18, vanished while hitchhiking from Spokane, Washington, and they were going to their home in Fairbanks, Alaska. Their bodies were found in May of 1981, a year later, and the suspected serial killer, Martin Lee Sanders, was connected to the murders. But really, as of 2018, this case remains unsolved, and Randy has been thought of as the killer in this one too he could be man he didn't he didn't care no he was like i
0: say he was all over the place man i was just thinking man between him and bundy i know bundy didn't just stay in this area but that's close to 100 people man Mm -hmm. yeah uh, well bundy's admitted to 30 and this guy could have at least 44 and then how many they didn't catch him for that's probably pushing 100 people that's pretty sad yeah and you never heard of this guy? <laughs>
1: no. Yeah, I I'd, I'd mentioned this case to Dale a while back, and I don't think he'd heard of it. No, I'd never heard of him, and I'm, I know a lot about stuff. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, this case, I mean, its just, I don't know why it didn't receive the publicity, you know, of cases like Bundy or Gary Ridgway or some of those other serial killers or John Wayne Gacy. Uh, I don't know.
0: Yeah, it's just, and this guy would love it, as vain as he is. He won't all the attention. Maybe that's why he's not getting it, but. I guess if you're eating people or dressing up as clowns and little stuff like that, you get pushed up the list a little more than old football player from Green Bay. Mm-hmm,
1: that's right. On February the 28th, the investigation was now focused on Woodfield, and by the by then the I 5 bandit had struck three more times in Eugene on February the 18th and 21st, and with another sexual assault in Corvallis on February the 25th. Now, Dale, the Texas Marion County, Assembled a call log showing Woodfield had placed calls via calling cards. This was before they had, you know, you, had, you could use a card to go to a payphone. Yeah, that's what I keep you from carrying around $5 dollars worth of quarters. You make a phone
0: call. You know, I guess most people don't didn't even see uh, payphones anymore, but back then you just carry your calling card and give them a the number, you can call from anywhere.
1: Yeah, so that's how they had uh, found call logs showing they had used these cards and paying at payphones. Near the murder sites around the times they were committed. Yeah, almost making a map for him. Yeah, and on March the fifth, nineteen eighty one, Woodfield was brought into the Salem Police Department for an interrogation, after Lisa Garcia positively identified him in a photo lineup. His apartment in Springfield was searched two days later by warrant, and inside, law enforcement discovered a spent thirty-two shell casing, inside a racquetball bag. Yeah, that's crazy. When they got there. I don't know. They see yeah, one of his murders. He picked that shell casing up and uh, put in his bag. Yeah, Surely he didn't. Well, I don't know. Maybe he did carry his bag with him, had his gun in. Oh, who knows? But anyway, it was in there. His kill bag. They found it. Yeah, and also there was a roll of tape that matched the tape found on his victims. All right. I wonder if has the same tape he had on his nose. Very well could be. Hmm. You know, I, I thought about why. Why did he wear the tape on his nose? Why? Well, maybe it's
0: a uh, some kind of disguise or helps. Like it's kind of like uh, somebody wears glasses; they always wear them, and then you see them without them, they look way different. Mm-hmm. And even though you see them a lot, you know, so maybe it takes attention
1: from other details, and you look at that instead of other stuff. You wouldn't look at moles or, or mustaches or anything like that. You right, look guess. at focus on that tape. Yeah. That makes sense. That's pretty smart. I mean, uh, distraction. Basically. It is a distraction. Now on uh, March the seventh. Randy was taken into custody after being positively positively identified by several Oregon robbery victims. And on March the sixteenth, indictments for murder, rape, sodomy, attempted kidnapping, armed robbery, and illegal possession of firearms were initiated from various jurisdictions in Washington and Oregon, two different states. Yeah, they got him. They're gonna rack up some stuff on him. Yeah. So this this it's starting to spiral down for Randy. I mean, he went all his time not being caught, thinking he was above the law and just running amok. In the summer of 81, Woodfield was tried in Salem for the murder of Hull. This was getting back to the two girls that were cleaning the bank.
0: Right. This is the one.
1: Yeah. And as well as charges of sodomy and attempted murder on Wilmot. Wilmot testified against him in the trial and was the key in the prosecution's conviction. Now this is really cool. I always, I thought this was really cool. Prosecutor named Chris Van Dyke, who happens to be the son of actor Dick Van Dyke, was a Marion County District Attorney. I thought that was really cool. When yeah, it was pretty that. cool. Always looked Dick Van Dyke. Yeah, he's a I mean he's a good TV dad. Yeah, but guy. his son I mean he was he was key in prosecuting this case. Van Dyke would later characterize Woodfield as the coldest most detached defendant he had ever seen. And on June 26, 1981, after three and a half hours of deliberation, Woodfield was convicted on all counts and sentenced to life in prison plus 90 years. That's a pretty good time there. Yeah. Life plus 90. Yeah. And I also read, too, that they were running out of money on this case. They couldn't. That's why they give him the maximum that they could possibly, so there wouldn't be no chance of him getting out on all these other murders. They couldn't try him on all these other murders, so they give him the maximum they could on this one. Just, well, to, just they,
0: to make sure he stayed in prison. Yeah, they probably uh, figure that a life plus 90 will probably be good enough. I don't think he's going to live past that.
1: No, no.
0: And if he does, they could always retry him from there. So the- all
1: right. Now, in October of 81, a second trial was held in Benton County in which Randy received sodomy and weapons charges tied to one of the attacks in a restaurant bathroom and prior to this trial his counsel attempted to move the trial from willamette valley and he felt that owing to the publicity of the case received woodfield would not get a fair trial there the judge in this case denied counsel's request along with a request to hypnotize a prosecution witness in an effort to determine if that witness had been influenced by media coverage, yeah, I don't think Woodfield's
0: getting a, a fair trial. Anyway, what are they going to do? Move to to the middle, out in the middle of the country because he's been up and down the coast the whole time, you oh, know? Yeah, all the time. Oh yeah, he had been three states all down the I five.
1: Yep, Woodfield was convicted by jury and had an additional thirty five years added to his already instated sentence. Woo, yeah. So he's he's not getting out at all.
0: No, he could have been uh, even. Uh, tried by California and they had the death penalty at the time but they just said he's probably got enough years we're not spending our money to yeah, give him something when you already got him
1: Well, at least they're realizing they're not they're don't want to spend more money our government spends enough money yeah, plus Yeah, 125 years are to do it yeah I think he's he's good now is there anything we want to talk about before we get into his post conviction Dale do you have anything you want to bring up about about Randy no I just think he's a pretty pretty wild guy I don't
0: He started out all right and i don't know what happened to him somewhere around there and he just started getting into that needing that sexual exposure and domineering over some females and when he'd seen how that felt he just went went way off the edge
1: well one thing about randy he's serving his sentences in the oregon state penitentiary so he's he's still there where he committed these crimes but he's in he's in prison he's still alive today yeah and in october of 1983 He was injured by a fellow inmate during a prison disturbance. And in 1987, April of 1987, he filed a $12 million libel suit against author Ann Rule. Now, Ann is a true crime author, and she had written a book called The I-5 Killer. And it's an account of Randy's life and crime up and down the West Coast. And it was a best-selling book in '84. But the federal court in Oregon dismissed this lawsuit, uh, citing that the statute of limitations on such lawsuit had been exhausted. So Randy didn't get nothing out of this. During his time in the penitentiary, Randy has been married three times. That's crazy. Yeah, and divorced twice. Some letters he wrote from prison were eventually sold online as a collection titled The Serial Killer Letters, published by the Charles Press. One of these letters he wrote to a female journalist named Jennifer Furio. And at the closing of that letter, Dale, it says, and I quote, You only care to know why murders strike out in anger and rage. How should I know? What a question, Jenny. Care to write more personally? Share a photo? Talk once by phone? Your choice. Ciao. Randall Woodfield. Man, this dude is too cool. Chow. He, he I thinks mean, he is the
0: shit. Yeah,
1: chow. I mean.
0: <laughs> of course it is 70s or 80s, early 80s, but yeah, still <laughs> chow yeah, from prison.
1: <laughs> now, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of his victims. And I don't know if you have any information on this, Dale. But the majority of his victims were petite white women in their 20s. And of them, many of them come from middle class backgrounds particularly in instances of robbery and sexual assault they were young employees of restaurants and convenience stores and all these were along the i-85 corridor and most of them happened within a block or two off of interstate five
0: yeah he wasn't going far off i figure this is probably where you pull off and sometimes at night you could set out and watch what's going on you know the light in the store be lit up pretty good it's because it's like gas stations and stuff like that so he probably knew what was going on and who was there and then While he was traveling up and down, he could just stop in. These were easy, right off the road, hit them, and right back on the road.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Now, it was noted that Jim Lawrence, he's a detective for Portland's cold case unit, he noted that Randy's lack of remorse or responsibility in his crimes, and he was saying that if you're talking about somebody moving towards some form of rehabilitation, they had to at some point acknowledge they were responsible for their own behaviors. That's not Randy Woodfield.
0: No, no. He still never confessed anything, do he? No, he's never
1: confessed to any of these murders. He even told detectives that he would never rape a girl. He didn't have to. They all wanted him. Mhm. And and this Jim Lawrence also noted that Randy's egotism, even during his interrogations, when he was interviewed, I mean he would tell the detectives that he never raped a girl, like he said. And I don't yeah, yeah, he was he was very arrogant. He was also characterized as smooth with the ladies. Oh yeah and good looks disposition aided his ability to trap
0: victims yeah he just a them in even one of them on the police report he had uh he had done something too pretty pretty bad and they still said that he was a handsome guy and you know he must be pretty good looking for you to assault somebody and they still say you're a handsome guy
1: yeah describe you as handsome <laughs> yeah he must have been he must have been a ladies man especially with that that poor mustache
0: yeah 1970s Green yeah. Bay packer ticket
1: yeah and he would, uh, later in his career, you know, after he got cut off the team and even the minor league team, he would still carry that airline ticket from the Green Bay Packers and carry it in his wallet.
0: Yeah, I'm sure he was whooping that out.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, he'd say, yeah, oh, the Green Bay Packers. Yeah, he was proud of that. Mm-hmm. You know, Dale, like many serial killers whose killing patterns are characterized by, you know, intervals of cooling off time. Randy's murders and other crimes escalated. Whew. You know, he wasn't no
0: cooling off. He was two or three a day sometimes. Crazy. Yeah, you
1: know, like, you know, I've read like BTK killer. He would, you know, he got go several years before he would kill. Right. He would cool off, but Randy, I mean, he just, he did not care.
0: He's a different kind of killer. He was just getting off on this. It was a sexual thing for him, I think. Because, I mean, he just, if he couldn't find somebody, he knew he would just knock up the, the ice cream store. I mean, come on. Mm-hmm. He didn't. He wasn't. He's not your typical, if there is such thing as typical
1: serial killer. Now, if any of you want to learn a little bit more about this, in 2011, uh, Randy was a subject of a lifetime TV movie called "Hunt for the I Five Killer," and this film was based on the book "The I Five Killer" by Ann Rule. In this movie, it has actors John Corbett and Bo Derek. Oh wow! Ten. Yeah, and I watched a little bit of this while researching this case and you know it's, it's it's a movie it's hollywood but you know there's some good facts and details in it about this case and it's it doesn't start out like we were done with this podcast you know starting out in his early life it starts out with the murders right i yeah. didn't know about this movie i have to check this out yeah so you know it's, it's a good movie I, didn't, I haven't watched all of it but i probably watched 50 percent of it and I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to continue watching the rest cool. of it what did you say you found out the movie yeah it's on YouTube you can watch it on YouTube okay cool
0: yeah but I don't know if you know if well after doing this I really would like to see it uh,
1: I don't know if it's on Netflix or anything like that but I watched it on YouTube okay alright Dale is there anything else you need to add to this case cause like I said this you know he's <laughs> and this guy he's pretty bad
0: yeah pretty bad it's just crazy that I never even heard of him until you brought it up and he killed all these people when you put him up to a list of the other ones, I mean, he's just as there or more. Even Dahmer, Ramirez, and Gacy, like we all said, his numbers, this guy could be at least to, to 44. They really don't know, but it's just crazy to me that nobody – you never hear his name.
1: How many kills were there on uh, Bundy? How I many did he have? Did he he had admitted
0: it? to 30, but they, they're thinking there's probably more. But yeah, 30 he admitted to. Dahmer had 17 victims. Um, John Wayne Gacy, thirty three, and Richard Ramirez is uh, thirteen. Yeah, it makes me wonder why some of these get notoriety and others don't. Right, and this, yeah, I know it's crazy. It didn't, it didn't make a lot of sense, and I didn't even know about this movie either. But I probably wouldn't have watched it because I didn't know it was a true deal. I didn't know I never heard of the i five killer. Mm-hmm. But
1: now I will. Oh yeah, and it just blows my mind. All right, we want everybody to. Go to our social media. Tell us what you think. Tell us what you think about this episode. Leave us a comment. Uh, if you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, leave us a, a five-star rating. It helps us move up in the ratings and helps us get more notice.
0: Yeah, and no, for, for uh, those of you listening on Spotify, I don't know what you do because we can't find anywhere that you can do it. So I've, I've looked. I've had several people ask me how to rate and review on
1: Spotify, and I have no idea. Spotify is just a little bit different in their their way of doing things. And I know that we have a lot of Spotify listeners, and that's that's cool. We appreciate you listeners. But they just do a little bit different on their, even their their stats and everything. It's just different. Yeah, they're on their own. Yeah. And that's fine. That's cool, too. Oh, yeah. That's what I use.
0: Yeah, I think we got him. 125 years, and it's still there. All right.
1: Piece of trash. We want everybody out there to be careful, be safe. Be observant of your surroundings, watch where you're going, take notice of people around you,
0: because the next episode could be about you.
1: This is the the Crack House House Chronicles.